Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue studying God's Word. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is beginning a new series in the book of Philippians. If you're looking for a church, a place to connect with other believers, let me invite you to come and worship with us at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and we can be reached through email, phone, or through our website. That's www.calvaryfayetteville.com. You can call us at 479-442-4634. Again, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is beginning a series on the book of Philippians entitled Joy in the Gospel. Today's message is taken from Philippians 1, 1 and 2, and is entitled Saints, Shepherds, and Servants. Let's listen together. Well, I hope you have your Bibles close by. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, beginning a brand new series today that will take us, I don't know how long, but uh, to this uh, great uh, book of the Bible, a book filled with joy, a book filled with instruction. It's page number 980 if you are reading out of one of the Pew Bibles. I appreciate so very much Pastor Dan speaking for the last uh, three weeks. I appreciate even more his subject, the Trinity. We are Trinitarian people, and that is far more important than you and I often think of it, that we serve a God who is three, yet one. And so uh, that is a theme that you will hear uh, often along the way, our triune God, the God we serve and worship. Well, Paul's letter to the Philippians, these believers in the city of Philippi, is one of four letters that he wrote from a Roman prison, a Roman prison cell. That's why uh, Philippians is referred to along with Ephesians, Colossians, and the little book to Philemon. Uh, That's why these are referred to as prison epistles. Though they deal uh, with a man who is writing from prison, for his faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ, they deal with some of the most liberating themes to be found in all of the New Testament. So they are very precious to you and me. Now, I've called this series, entitled it, Joy in the Gospel. And if you do any studying about the book of Philippians, if you read what others say about this uh, four-chapter letter, oftentimes you'll find them referring to joy being uh, the theme of the book. But actually, it is just one of several themes or several motifs in this book. This book also teaches us how to endure hardship. It teaches us about the necessity of humility and following the example of Christ, how to love God and love one another, how to have hope beyond any of our momentary suffering. These are all themes along with joy in this book. Now, some of you, it's one of your favorite books too because of its many memorable verses. One writer has referred to these as 
coffee cup verses. Verses like, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You've heard that quoted and preached on. Maybe you've quoted it yourself. Or, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or maybe one of those two very well-known verses from chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or that promise, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, and for many years, we have hung our hats and our hopes on verses like that. Now, I said that one writer's called them coffee cup verses. Why would that be? Well, if you go into any Christian bookstore, you're going to find all kinds of coffee cups, t-shirts, ball caps, and wall art that extol those very familiar verses. Some of you maybe even have something hanging on a wall in your home with one of those verses on it. And as wonderful as those well-known verses from this little book, this letter, as precious as they are to us, sometimes it's a bit of a problem. Sometimes it can cause us some difficulties to know these three or four or five verses so well, but we have totally disconnected them from their context. And sometimes, if we're not careful, from their very intention in the Bible. One author says this, they can take on a life of their own apart from their context and become sentimentalized, if that is a word, and emptied of their depth. Well, we're going to consider those uh, verses we love so much, but we're going to do it in context, and hopefully they will come to mean even more to you. So let's go ahead and jump right into our text. And today, our text, we're going to consider just two verses, just the very beginning of this book. You may think, well, that doesn't have a whole lot to say, but I believe it's plenty for us to chew on today. Hear and receive the word of the Lord. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I've outlined these brief words with three words, and we will probably only get through two of them today, all right? Three words, background, beneficiaries, and blessing. First of all, the background to Paul's letter. In order to understand what Paul says to these believers at Philippi, it's very important that you and I recall and remember some of the background to this letter and how we get to it. What was the origin of the church at Philippi and what is the occasion of this letter that Paul 
writes to them. And more than some of the other uh, letters Paul uh, has written or other New Testament writers have written, we know a little more background about this church and the origin of it. I often think of Philippi as an accidental church. Now, understand, don't leave here and say I said that, even though I did. There is no such thing as an accidental church. There is no such thing as an accident. There are only accidents because you and I have a limited view of life and life's experiences. In the rearview mirror, we can see that God's providence is guiding all things in our lives, even some of those things that we didn't understand at the time, even some of those things that maybe we still don't understand, but we've come to trust the goodness and the providence of God in our lives. And this church, Philippi, was birthed in the providence and in the plan of God, though at the time it seemed like an accidental church. Why do I say that? Because you see, if you go back to Romans chapter 16, where we read about the beginning of this church, you find that Paul had no intentions of ever going to Philippi to begin with. Now, Paul and Barnabas had gone on one missionary journey. They had gone into this wild region around Galatia and around the area where Paul was from, being from Tarsus, and they preached and they planted churches in places like Derby and Iconium and Lystra and places like this. They experienced some hardship. Paul was stoned on one of those occasions and left for dead. And they went on this missionary tour and they planted churches. And when it came time for his second missionary tour, uh, he said to Barnabas, let's go back and revisit those churches. But he and Barnabas had a little bit of a disagreement over uh, who was going to be their traveling companions. And so Barnabas took his nephew, John Mark, and sailed off to Cyprus on a different mission trip. And Paul took Silas, and Paul and Silas began to make their way on this trip. Along uh, this second missionary journey, they picked up uh, another traveler with them. They picked up Timothy, and they were going to revisit those same churches in Galatia and then to extend the outreach of the gospel into Asia Minor and into Bithynia further to the west and to the northwest. But as they traveled in that direction, and you read this, and it's fascinating in the book of Acts chapter 16. It's said in just so few words that somehow God hindered them from going into Asia Minor. And God prevented them from going into Bithynia. So their plans were, were somehow uh, hindered or prevented from taking place. And they continued to travel west till they came to a city called Troas on the edge of the Aegean Sea and they could go west no further without having to go by way of sea. And so it reminds us of the words of Psalm 37 in the Old Testament where the Bible tells us the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. God is guiding the steps of Paul because God has a plan for Paul and his ministry that Paul was as yet 
unaware of. He was not thinking of Philippi. He was thinking of Asia Minor. He was thinking of Bithynia. He was thinking of other places. I understand that George Mueller, the great man of faith, who planted orphanages in England and led so many children to the Lord, that in George Mueller's Bible, next to Psalm 37, where it says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, he had written in the column of his Bible, and so are the stops. Sometimes it's the stops of a good man that are ordered by the Lord. Sometimes God will put a roadblock in front of you And it's not one that he wants you to, by faith, go crashing through. It's one to redirect you in other directions. And that's exactly what he's doing in the Apostle Paul's life. So there at Troas, in a vision one night, Paul had a dream. And he saw a man of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is the next Uh, region to the west on the other side of the Aegean Sea. It is Greece. Brother Steve, can you pull me back just a little bit? I'm getting a little bit of echo up here. I might get excited and and get loud or something. And so here from Troas, they, they have this vision of a man of Macedonia saying, Paul, come over and help us. Come over and preach the gospel to us. And so they add a fourth member to their party. Now it's not just Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but a man by the name of Dr. Luke joins them also. And he becomes very prominent in Scripture with a gospel uh, that bears his name. So now we have a gospel quartet on a boat headed for Macedonia for their first unplanned concert. They land in a town, a city called Neapolis, and from Neapolis, they travel about 10 miles inward to a city known as Philippi. Now, you remember the events at Philippi without us rehearsing all of that. There is no synagogue there. Paul usually went first of all to the synagogue of the Jews, but there was no synagogue in Philippi. What did it take to have a synagogue? You had to have just 10 Jewish men, and you could have a synagogue. But there were not even 10 Jewish men in this city. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. It It wasn't just a, a town in the Roman Empire. It was designated a Roman colony. You might say it was little Rome. It was as Roman as Rome could be, whatever that means. Whatever you do in Rome, you do in Philippi. It was comprised of many uh, former Roman soldiers, many legionnaires. It was a very Roman city. And so Paul found a group of women, probably Jewish women, down by the riverside, a stream that is still there today, where they were making uh, a time and a place of prayer. And there was one who was named, and her name was Lydia. You remember, she was a seller of purple fabric. This was a very uh, expensive fabric. She was no doubt a very successful businesswoman. She was from Thyatira, from Asia Minor, but she had a home and a residence and a household. We don't know if it included a husband or not in the city of Philippi, and she was residing there. And she became the first convert to Christianity. Now understand, this is very important. 
because Macedonia is not Asia, it is Europe. It is Europe. Philippi is going to be the first church ever birthed in Europe. Understand that's important for you and me because the gospel came to America from where? Not from Asia, not originally. It came to us originally from Jerusalem, of course, by way of mission work in Asia, then Europe, and then to us. And so we have Lydia becoming a convert and probably some of the other women that were in that Bible study group. We find also that there was a demon-possessed slave girl who was a fortune teller. And Paul cast the demons out of her, and we presume that very likely perhaps she became a Christian and was baptized and became a part of this church as well. And then we have, because of the healing of that slave girl, we have Paul and his entourage put in prison. And you know how the miraculous release of them from prison with an earthquake, how a brutal jailer came to know Jesus and his household was baptized as well. And we have this very unusual start of this church, this church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is famous for doing things in an unusual way. And that's exactly what we have here. It wasn't planned It seems totally random, perhaps from Paul and other perspectives, but it was totally the providence and the plan of God, and this first church in Europe was birthed. Now let's fast forward 10 years later. 10 years later, the occasion of Paul's letter to this church. Understand that Paul now since then, has gone on a third missionary journey and has also ended up in Rome, but not in the way that he had intended. He ended up in Rome in a Roman prison cell for the gospel. But understand that Paul being in Rome and Paul being in prison does not stop the gospel. Prison never has stopped the gospel Prison only changes the means and the methods. It never changes or stops the message. And so this is 10 years later. It's probably A.D. 61 or 62. The gospel continues to advance throughout the Mediterranean theater. Churches are being planted. People are being saved. Christianity is now a movement to be reckoned with. And we have Paul writing this first of his, or one of these prison epistles. He is writing from prison, and he is writing to a church uh, that he helped to plant. Now, this letter to Philippi is different. It's different than his letters to Corinthians. It's different than his letters to the Thessalonians. It's different than his letters to the Ephesians or the Colossians. For you see, this letter is written in a very personal and a very friendly way. It's like he's writing to friends. He doesn't correct errant behavior. He doesn't clarify wrong teaching. He doesn't seek to communicate some new ministry direction or strategy. This is very likely his favorite 
congregation of all. Now, he loves all of God's people, but this church seems to have a special place in his heart. Now, we know that it very likely is the only church that we know of that supported him financially. In fact, that's one of the reasons he's writing this letter, that this church had sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus he sent, they sent Epaphroditus to Rome to find Paul and to carry to him a financial offering for his needs and for his ministry. But it's not just a personal and friendly letter. It's not just a thank you letter. It is an instructional letter. For you see, Paul is going to say, I don't know what my future holds. I don't know if I'm going to be free again or if I'm going to lose my head when I step out of this prison. I don't know if the future is life or death. But he says, whatever my future is, the same hope that, that I have is the same hope and confidence that you have. And he's writing to them in an instructional way because he's saying to them as a church, though I'm hundreds of miles away in a Roman prison, you and I are suffering under some of the same persecution. Now, they weren't in prison, but they were under the influence also of Roman and of the Roman Empire. Keep in mind, Philippi was the most Roman of all cities besides Rome itself. It was inhabited by all these former uh, Ro Roman legionnaires and their families. This Roman uh, city, this colony of Rome, this little Rome, these people were proud of their special relationship and connection to Rome. And they pledged loyalty joyfully to their emperor as their one and only Lord. Not only that, but, but Philippi was actually located directly on the Ignatian Way. If you're not familiar with that term, you might call it the Roman Road. The Ignatian Way led from Rome in the east all the way right through Philippi, all the way, uh, Rome to the west, all the way to the far east. It was the main thoroughfare in the whole Roman Empire. Philippi had people coming and going all the time from Rome on their business. This was a hard place to preach the gospel of Christ. And they were suffering uh, as Christians as many of them Gentile Christians, they were in the crosshairs of Rome in this city. And that's the reason Paul writes to them. If you have your Bibles open, look down to the last verse of chapter 1. Listen to his words. He says, For it has been granted to you, you have been blessed and gifted, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Wow, what a blessing. Thank you, Lord, that you have gifted and granted us the privilege of suffering for you. But that is a blessing, isn't it? Doesn't God promise great things for those who will bear, help bear his cross with him? And Paul says, it is your blessing it has been granted to you to believe. That wasn't your idea. That was God's idea. But also to suffer. Now listen to this verse 30. Engaged in the same conflict 
that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The conflict I have preaching the gospel, standing for Christ, suffering the consequences, whatever it is, you are engaged in that same conflict. And can I say to you today, child of God, all these years later, you and I are engaged in that same conflict also. It may not have cost you so far in your life to stand for Christ and to stand for his principles and his truth may not have cost you your job, your career. Yet, yet, but let this nation continue to go down the road we're going. Some of you, this time next year, if Jesus prolongs his coming, you likely will have lost your livelihood because you would not wear a rainbow or support some other ungodly and immoral cause. Standing for Christ is costly. It may cost you your reputation. It may cost you dearly, even physically, sometime before your life is over. It may mean imprisonment for some of us. Whatever it is, we are in the same conflict. This church is in the same conflict. And Paul is writing not only this friendly letter, but this instructional letter to him. So that's the background. That's the origin of this church. That's the occasion of this letter. Now let's notice, secondly, the beneficiaries. The beneficiaries of Paul's letter. It's the second part of verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Who are the beneficiaries? Who are the recipients of this letter? I don't know if you mark in your Bibles, but if you do, you might underline three words. Three groups of beneficiaries. First of all, saints. Saints. Secondly, overseers, overseers. And thirdly, deacons, deacons. It's important that we delve into and understand what Paul is saying here. Will you focus in with me, please? Will you do that? Now, you know me that I have the gift of alliteration. I am a master of alliteration. So I'm going to touch on all three of these. I'm going to change the words a little bit, but understand I'm being true to what it says. Let's look at these three groups in the reverse order that they were mentioned. First of all, servants. Paul calls them deacons. Deacons. That's a good word. Although it is suffering from a lot of misuse, and a lot of misunderstanding in the American church today. The very term deacon often brings to mind much of what many people say is wrong with the church today. Some of that, um, some of that is deserved. You might even have heard the term demon deacons. I don't think that's a good term. To use. But understand that this office, this position within the church, 
has come to, to be so despised in our culture today that many churches don't even acknowledge it any longer. I would suggest to you that most churches that have been started in the last 20 years have not chosen to even have deacons at all because of the negative connotation. The word deacon means servant. That's what it means, not only in what they are to do, but in what the word itself means. Deacons are to be servants. And we need to remember this, that this is still a viable and a much-needed office, I believe, in the church today. Not to necessarily do business or make directional decisions for the church, but to lead the way by a sacrificial lifestyle and service, what it means to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that this office was ordained by God in Acts chapter 6. We need to remember that it is affirmed by God with specific instructions and qualifications. We read about those in 1 Timothy and also in Titus. And that it was recognized throughout the New Testament era as uh, leaders within the church, servant leaders within the church. And not only in the church, in Acts and throughout the New Testament theater, but also in the historic church for 2,000 years until today. Now, we have many faithful servants here at Calvary. I like to think that every member of Calvary Church, every faithful member, is a servant of the Lord and of God's people. I'm especially thankful that we have four men that we are blessed with here at the church who presently serve as deacons. Brother Stephen Avitz, Brother Steve Hignite, Brother Rick Pierce, those three men all in our services today, and Brother Garland Thomas at home. I hope watching, hello Brother Garland, at home watching recovering from surgery. And I want you to know that while there are many gifts within the church, gifts of giving, gifts of evangelism, gifts of teaching, all kinds of gifts in the church, that there are only two offices that are ordained by God to help lead the church. And that is deacons, servants, and group number two, shepherds. Paul calls them overseers in this verse. What is an overseer? Well, it's someone who oversees, right? That would be the answer if you were taking this question on a test in school and you weren't for sure. And the teacher said, what is an overseer? Well, it's somebody that oversees. Surely you ought to at least get half a point for answering, right? It's what we call as pastor. Pastors are overseers. Overseers are pastors. Now listen, this is about to get just not complicated, but, but a little bit specific, and it's very important that you catch it. So focus in with me. There are three different words to describe one office in the church. 
three words to describe the office of pastor. One office with three different words illustrating or giving to us three different responsibilities or functions. We know them as overseers. And overseers, that is a word that means to lead and to manage. It is to have the responsibility of oversight. There is the word elder. The word elder we encounter in the New Testament. It's another word for pastor. It has to do with maturity and wisdom. That a pastor is not to be a novice. It's not to be a rookie. It's not to be a beginner in the faith. And third, that word pastor or shepherd. Sometimes it is used as a noun. Sometimes it's used as a verb. They are shepherds, but they are to shepherd the flock of God. Three different titles. One Office. Now notice the words managing, maturing, and ministering. This is the threefold expression and the work of pastors. We call them shepherd leaders here at Calvary, but it's fair also to refer to them as elders, as pastors. Now understand this in the New Testament. You don't ever find these words used in the singular. God never intended for a church to be led by one pastor. Although that is the norm of what most of us have grown up with and experienced. One pastor, maybe multiple staff members but one pastor, nobody else alongside him. It's, that's totally foreign to the New Testament. These are always in the plural. Now, it doesn't mean that they are all vocational pastors, that they all have been called to make their living as pastors. There are pastors there are uh, those on the pastoral team that live and work in the secular world, but they are pastors nonetheless alongside with the vocational pastor or pastors that lead the church. I'm thankful that here at Calvary to join Pastor Dan and myself as pastors, as overseers, as elders, as pastor shepherds. We have Brother David Bentley, we have Brother David Cook, who is at home on COVID quarantine. <laughs> By the way, we know them as first and second David, okay? To sound a little more biblical. But also Justin Swope, okay? I realize that causes some of you to tremble a little bit as I mentioned Justin's name. But I'm so thankful these men serve us. Uh, alongside. Now understand this. Paul and Timothy, when they write this letter, when Paul introduces himself as where this letter is coming from, when he said in verse 1, Paul and Timothy. Now, this is an apostle and an apostle's apprentice, okay? 
And they are writing to this church. And what do they call themselves? Look back at it in verse 1. What do they call themselves? Servants. Even as an apostle, he is a servant. Remember this. Leaders in the Lord's church, whether it is an apostle, whether it is a pastor shepherd, whether it is an overseer, a deacon, a missionary, a Sunday school teacher, a ministry leader, whoever is leading in the church, they never cease to be servants. Always. It is servanthood. Leadership is about servanthood. It's not about being at the top of the triangle at the top of the hierarchy. If you look at leadership inside of a church, you need to do this. You need to turn that triangle upside down, however that would look. And understand that the top of the heap is at the bottom as far as being servants in the most fundamental way. It begins and ends with service and servanthood. Know this, that leadership does not move you from a place of serving to being served. Leadership is not based on what you know. It's based on how you serve. And positions of leadership are not rewards. They are just greater places of responsibility and greater places that you will have to give account of to God someday. Now, I realize the time and hour is getting late, and I realize it's Mother's Day. But let me come to the most important part of this message. Saints. Saints. Who are the beneficiaries, the recipients of this letter? There are servants. They are the deacons. There are shepherds. That's the overseers. Also, saints. I want to suggest to you that next to the references to God the Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ, that saints is the most important word in these two verses. What is a saint? Do you know any saints? Take just a moment and look around this auditorium. Do you see any saint? Now, some of you are not doing that. You're still looking at me. Look around. Cast your eyes out at the people sitting here. Do you see any saints? To understand what a saint is, you've got to understand what a saint ain't. I just made that up. Just, just this very minute. It just came to mind. There it was. Take the S off and what do you have? Ain't. So what a saint ain't. It's important to know this because we, we know that in some religious traditions there are those people who are designated for sainthood, okay? First of all, a saint is not some kind of special classification of Christians. It's just not. There is one very large, well-known uh, religious denomination that emphasizes people, and they designate people as saints based on holiness, based on some religious great sacrifice that over the years, I don't know if it's still this way, you had to be dead to become a saint. 
And, and many times you had to experience martyrdom or you had to have some miracle that could be attributed in some way to your intervention or your service, and then you could be sainted. Now, this is a direct quote. Now, it's not a quote from that denomination. It is a quote about that, but I love the way it says it. In the Catholic Church, people can achieve sainthood after death. People like Mother Teresa, that is, not, not just any chump. And that's what it says. That's a direct quote. Like Mother Teresa, she can be a saint, but not just any chump will ever make it. But understand that a saint is not some special classification of Christian. Secondly, it is not an especially holy or saintly believer by our estimation. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, sister so-and-so, she is, she's a saint. And they mean that, that, that she's just held in such high regard. I want to tell you, my grandmother, my grandmother never learned to drive. After my grandpa passed away at the age of 80-something, I had to show my grandmother, teach her how to write a check. She, I mean, she was the most godly woman, always had a hymn humming or singing. All I'm going to tell you, my grandmother was a saint, if ever there was one, in that use of the word. Now, in contrast, my wife's grandmother was not a saint. She was a pistol-packing road warrior from South Texas. Now, she was just as saved as my grandmother, but you wouldn't typically think of Mrs. Martin being a saint in that use of the word. So it's not how we use that word, so-and-so being a saint and so-and-so is not. And let me just say, for those of you young guys like Brady and like Joey over here, a saint is not a member of the NFL football team in New Orleans. Okay? Well, I mean, they, they are saints, but they ain't. Okay, what is a saint then? What is a saint? The Bible in the New Testament uses the word more than 80 times. More than 80 times. And understand this. It is almost every time used kind of like those elders and pastors in the plural. It's talking about a body of people, not singular individuals. Okay? It's talking about a body of people. Listen to me now. You got to take this home with you. It's talking about the redeemed people of God. Everyone who has been saved by the grace of God, these are the saints of the Lord. So as you look around the room and you see other people, you are beholding saints. You are beholding saints. They are people saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Now I had more to say about those saints, about those beneficiaries, but I know our time is short, so I'll stop right 
there. Close your Bibles up. Get everything in place. Remove all distractions. And look up here at me for just a moment. I'm going to ask our musicians to go ahead and come. Are you a saint? Are you a saint? I know that probably none of us could say out loud with our mouths, yes, I am a saint, without feeling just really weird doing that. But you are if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. If you have heard the call of God and responded to it in faith, if you have recognized your sin and your shame and your separation from Him, and if you've understood the gospel message that Jesus bore your sin and your shame and your separation, and he took it to the cross and died a death that you deserved, that I deserved. And that there's nothing you could ever do to earn that or inherit that or to gain that by anything you ever did. That it is all of God, not of your effort. And if you have trusted him as your Savior, if you've placed the full weight of your eternal soul on Jesus Christ, if you've turned and repented from your sins, if you're trusting his grace and his sacrifice alone as your hope of eternal life, you are a saint in the company of the redeemed. And know this, that as Paul wrote to those saints 2,000 years ago, this friendly letter, and he addressed them about what they share in the gospel, that he wasn't just writing to Philippi. If that was the case, this letter would have been lost after that church was through with it. But it's been by the grace of God it has been kept and preserved in the Word of God for you and me today. When he writes to saints, he's writing to you. He's writing to you and to you. He's writing to you guys. He's writing to me. And it's a message for us. If you are not a saint today, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, would you call on me or Pastor Dan or one of these other uh, folks here today before you leave, we can show you how you can be numbered in this uh, company of the redeemed of God. It'll make all the difference in the world in your life. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the truth of it, for the meaning of it, for the value of it for our, li our lives today. Father, thank you that we can call ourselves saints, not because of what we've done, 
but because of what Christ has done for us. Please forgive us of our sins. Send us on our way rejoicing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.